Very few people are ever healed by being told the truth instead of feeling the truth for themselves. Chapter 29, page 289, All the Crooked Saints. Hi, I'm Shannon. And I'm Navita. And we're We're the the Raven Raven Girls. Welcome to our very first special episode. Where we're taking a look at Maggie Steve Otter's new release, All the Crooked Saints. Disclaimer, we will be doing a spoiler-free discussion at the beginning, but stay tuned after the sign-off if you want to hear our discussion that goes into more spoilery stuff. Right, we'll just do a little bit of character discussion and some. we don't want that to get into people who haven't read it. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> And a disclaimer from me, I may cuss, enough said. This is going to be a more casual conversation than what our normal analysis would be like. We have notes that we haven't necessarily shared with each other. This is actually, we did a little bit of talking over lunch, but we haven't gotten into the meat of the book. So this will actually be Shannon and I sitting down and talking about this book together for the first time. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. So it will be a more casual, more relaxed conversation. Like our episode zero. Much more like our episode zero. We basically have some discussion topics we'll be going back and forth so the format will be a little bit different and yeah with that let's get to the episode awesome shannon you have a synopsis of the book i do all the crooked saints is the story of a mexican-american family the serias in the 60s mm -hmm, who have the ability to perform miracles though these miracles aren't exactly what people would expect Pilgrims come from all over to have the Bashirias perform these miracles. The problem is learning to live with these miracles after Mm. they occur. It's a running theme that miracles come in twos. This is the story of a young man who leaves Oklahoma looking for a box truck and finds love of many different sorts. Mm -hmm. It's the story of a DJ from Philadelphia who doesn't want to be a DJ anymore and a young man from the Colorado desert who really, really does. Mm It's the story of a saint realizing he doesn't have to face everything alone. And it's the story of a girl who grew up thinking she had no feelings, realizing she absolutely does. Mm -hmm. So that leads us into characters. And one thing that I noticed about this book is that there are a ton of characters. There are a lot of characters. (sighs) Right. Way more than the Raven Cycle. Way more. Well, maybe not more than the Raven Cycle, but considering that it's 300 pages long, this book is very, very short, Mm -hmm. but it's jam-packed with all of these little tidbits of people. And I didn't even sit down and count which I suppose I could, but there's well over a dozen characters in 300 pages. And to me, the most interesting thing about it, yes, you're not going to be able to get a whole lot of character development in 300 pages, Mm -hmm. especially with a cast that's as large as it is. Mm -hmm. So it is very, to me, it was very clear that she was setting up archetypes with the characters and that they are in and of themselves symbols of what needed to take place in the story. Right. So there are three cousins, Beatrice, Daniel, and Joaquin. Those are the three teenagers that are the Soraya cousins. Mm-hmm. They're established in the first chapter. And then there's Pete. He's the boy that comes from Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And he is hitchhiking and is picked up by Tony, who is a DJ from Philadelphia, who is going to the Sarias for a miracle. Mm-hmm. 
And then there's the Surya family itself, which has multiple adults (laughs) that kind of flow in and out of the story (laughs) based on kind of what the needs of the narrative Mm -hmm. are. Let's see. Nana and Michael and Rosa. (laughs) And I wrote them down. Yeah. (laughs) Luis the one-handed. Yes. (laughs) Who really is only there to be Luis the one-handed. He's in there like maybe two or three times. So there's the Holseria family, which there's also, like I said, maybe six or seven of the adults. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the pilgrims who are living in this little corner of what of used to be a ranch mm-hmm. with the Sarias who do not interact with the Surya family. Right. And there's, let's see, six of those as well. Mm-hmm. That are named. There may be, there may be more. Oh, okay. Because he goes... Well, anyway. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He does. Yeah. 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 He goes through and meets every single Mm. one and they're all introduced. So, yes, there are a lot of characters across the board. And one of the things that I really liked that very, very, very quickly establishes what these characters are or who they are is that Maggie introduces almost every single one of them with a thing that they want and a thing that they fear. Yes, that is such a good shorthand. That is one of the things that I mentioned yeah. In my notes later on. Yeah, it's such a good shorthand when you are you are literally getting down to the nitty gritty of that particular person mm-hmm. when you're looking at a hope and a fear. Mm-hmm. Do you have any breakdowns character by character or anything like that? Uh, mm, not really. Did you want to go into personalities of the characters or? So sure, we can at least talk about the Surya cousins and Pete. Pete is the outsider. He is coming to the ranch, and this is established really early, so we won't consider it a spoiler. It's within the first couple of pages. It's within the first two chapters. Pete is coming to the ranch, basically, to work for a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And Pete is very salt of the earth. He's very pragmatic in a lot of ways. But he is very definitely that outside perspective Mm-hmm. that this family and the people that are living there need to shift. Right. There's a big theme on people can't see what's happening to them from inside of their own right. heads. And literally these people are living in this. It's almost a bottle episode on a TV show yeah. where you shove the whole cast or like that submarine movie where you shove the whole cast and they're not allowed to kind of get out. Mm-hmm. And they the environment is incredibly contained. There is very little scenery change. In fact, right. there's like three scenes that are actually outside of the Saria compound. So it's very much a bottle episode where you are putting these characters under pressure right off the bat. Mm-hmm. They're they are only going to change when this outside influence comes to observe them from outside. Right. From an outside perspective. Mm-hmm. And then Beatrice, Beatrice, Beatrice? <laughs> I don't know. I do not speak Spanish. <laughs> I know. It's I think it's Beatrice. I I've been mentally pronouncing it Beatrice. Right, because that's the closest probably Mm -hmm. Um, But she is a very scientific, very logical person that has divorced herself from any acknowledgement of having emotion. And she is sort of an engineer in the family and she's a builder and Mm -hmm. she likes to tinker. Right. She's very mechanically motivated Mm -hmm. or like she loves problems. Puzzles. Puzzles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's how her brain works. Right. 
There's a whole lot to get into about that kind of stuff, and we'll get into that a little later. Right. I have a feeling that some of the character stuff we're actually going to want to reserve for a spoiler mm-hmm. section, because I, yeah. don't, I don't want to reveal things about the characters because they do arc. And yes. I feel like we need to not discuss their arc, because mm-hmm. this is even more so than the Raven Cycle, which we spend most of our time talking about, obviously. <laughs> this is a character-driven book. There is zero plot <laughs> or like well one plot 1.2 percent <laughs> plot there is i mean but even the plot oh uh we might have to pause to discuss this but <laughs> came on okay so to go to one of the other Saria cousins joaquin do you have mm. anything to say about joaquin right off the bat joaquin is I like him a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> He's he wants to be so stylish, and mm-hmm. he wants like he loves music, and he wants to be in that right in that world, and just. Right. But yet, he also really wants to be like respected by his family, and right, yeah. There is a moment, and I think Joaquin is very easy to dismiss at the beginning because he does polish himself and he presents Mm -hmm. himself in a way that is really false. I mean, he's presenting himself as a personality, not a person. Right. And there are, again, tiny, tiny little character moments where you actually get to see who Joaquin is as a person. And often they are, again, in response to someone else. They're less internal. A lot of the character moments tend... Well, I can't even say that. Again, it's hard without giving spoilers on what happens, Mm -hmm. but... It's very much like someone else triggers something in another person, and then that reveals something about that other person. Right, right. And then Daniel. Mm -hmm. Daniel is the current saint. In every generation, there is one designated saint, although it's established early on that there are several who have the ability to perform miracles. It's just that one is more suited for the task than others. Right. Basically, like all those Surya's can perform miracles. But in this generation, Daniel is the one who actually finds it something that he wants to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It said very early, the first chapter, that Beatrice can also perform miracles Mm -hmm. but that she actually does not want to right and it does get into reasons why that happens but Mm -hmm. there are very few other outside characters notably there is a rancher that shows up which is great (laughs) i don't Mm -hmm. really want to get into her character uh, but we'll we'll talk about her later we'll have to talk about her in the spoiler (laughs) section because i do adore her And then there are some characters like Daniel's parents that aren't actually at the the compound in the story, but are significant Mm -hmm. pushes for character development. Mm -hmm. Anything else we want to talk about with the characters? I don't think so. I think that about covers it. Or at least the stuff that we can go into without being spoilery. It's going to be hard for us, but I can always go through and cut it out later. So the very (laughs) first thing I want to ask, and this wasn't on our list of questions, but what were your first impressions as you started reading the book? My first impression was, wow, this is going to be even more, even stranger than The Raven Cycle. (laughs) Like, I actually have that written down in my books. Mm -hmm. Um, 
in my notes, like not chapter one, but when Maricita shows up, I was like, oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so this is going to be this kind of book. Yes. Yeah. My first impression was that it was extremely funny. Oh, yes. And on this particular book, within the first three chapters, I laughed out loud. <laughs> oh, bunch. me too. And I'm really glad that I, I read this book first. So I had pre-ordered the audiobook and then seen a bunch of people post how the physical copies had ended up on the shelves at Barnes and Noble. And so I convinced my mom, who I was visiting in Iowa, to take me to Barnes and Noble so I could go buy it. <laughs> I'm really, really glad that I read it first because mm-hmm. not to disparage the audiobooks, but I feel like the sense of humor was a lot easier for me to get on these books mm-hmm. from it like the delivery on the audiobooks was just not as funny, I thought. Uh as it could have been and I thought it was hilarious actually <laughs> reading it to myself yeah there was there were a lot of funny points yeah I have not re- listened to the audiobook at all yet yeah so I I just got the ebook mm-hmm. and then of course you know just gorgeous lyrical prose oh even yeah, the like, first couple yeah. of paragraphs I mean obviously are just Oh, Lord, you have to go back and read them again and then go back and read them again. And then and maybe that's also why it was good that I read the book first. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Maggie's just a master at that and really crafting the perfect sentence. And mm-hmm. it's I just I she's, she's talked, so able to cram so much so stuff much. into like a tiny little yeah. sentence or a little fragment. And I just found some passages so gorgeous. And sometimes I had to go back and actually read them aloud. Mm -hmm. I actually read passages aloud to my mom because I just needed to hear them Mm -hmm. and the way that they actually came out. And music is a big theme in the book. Absolutely. And it was almost like there was this musicality of Of the the passages. Of the song. Yeah. Well, yes, literally. (laughs) Of the the book where you had to mouth it the mouth had to actually feel Mm -hmm. the way that the words came out and my mom who is hispanic uh and i read some of the passages about the surya family and all of that Uh, we're not mexican-american and i did not grow up in the culture but she did grow up steeped in some of that culture but she's like oh no she's a that she's a great writer and i'm like yes this is why i stalk her (laughs) i mean online not in real life but um and then of course it was very obvious very early on that it was very philosophical Mm -hmm. and also very bittersweet Mm -hmm. and I do think that Maggie has said that she started out writing a book that was going to be much much darker than this actually was Hmm. and she came to this realization that it really needed to be about hope and so it ended up being a lot lighter and I'm like and I like that I'm I'm a little worried about what what would have happened to the characters oh my goodness if this if this was the the light light version Uh So my other impressions of it, and I texted this to Shannon, was just kind of the absurdism of it. It reminded me a lot of Tom Robbins, who was one of my favorite authors in high school, of course, and early 20s. And the way he crafts, he often anthropomorphizes objects and tells the story from their point of view. And again, this is very early in the book. Uh, in the second chapter, 
the desert is anthropomorphized. And as soon as that happened and you got that whole kind of feeling of like the desert as a character, Mm -hmm. I was instantly kind of in this stripped down version of a Tom Robbins book. Of course, Tom Robbins, very dense. Mm -hmm. uh, And this is much more accessible, although still beautiful. But it kind of gave me that feeling and also the feeling of almost like Christopher Moore or Roald Dahl. Mm-hmm. With that kind of just like, you're living in the real world, but crazy stuff is happening. And uh-huh. you're not quite sure what's actually real and what's not. It reminded me a lot of the movie Big Fish. Yes, that was definitely one of the things that I had seen. And also someone else mentioned Amelie. Mm-hmm. As, I haven't as, seen Amelie. But... Oh, it's good. It's good. So... But it kind of has this blend of absurdist humor and philosophy and surrealism. And you're not quite sure what's actually real Mm -hmm. and what's actually not. Because at some point, you just kind of say, all right, that really happened. (laughs) Whatever whatever it was, I guess that's actually a thing that happened. What did you like most about the book or what what really worked for you? I really loved like the fable-like qualities of this story. Like just... Mm -hmm. Just the way... The kind of tall tale. Yeah, it's like a a fable or a tall tale or a folk tale or even like a proverb or like... Allegory. Allegory. There's another... I mean, we were trying to remember what... We were sitting at at lunch and I'm like, there is a word for the thing. Well, I said parable, Mm -hmm. but I honestly... Parable to me speak so much of like a Bible story, even though Aesop's fables were parables Mm -hmm. uh, in a way. So yes, there's that that feeling of like these characters, you're supposed to be able to put yourself in the story in these characters' shoes. Right. Yeah. I liked the way... Like you were saying, like the that the absurdism is just taken for granted, mm-hmm. like the way that the pilgrims are just seen as like you know this is how life is, mm-hmm. and everybody just works around it and accepts it as you know oh this is what happens. There aren't really like thematic elements that are, that are the same, but I guess it's just because of Maggie's writing that I kept seeing like connections to the Raven Cycle, mm-hmm. and I just I, I just be like little lines or something. I'd be like, oh, haha, that reminds me of. Yeah, I didn't have a lot of that. I actually was able to divorce myself pretty thoroughly from the Raven Cycle. I think because there's just so many. It's just so much crammed into this book. Mm -hmm. I mean, as far as people are concerned and because of that, it's I don't know. I just Mm -hmm. I didn't I did not personally make a lot of connections to the Raven Cycle. Mm-hmm. But obviously, like, yeah, you did. Not, yeah, yeah, not not like you know specifically like oh this is just like right right right. Mm. But I, I will say that Pete was... ca- Pete kind of reminds me a little bit of Adam. Yeah, yeah, he definitely reminds like, me more like, of yeah. Adam. Like I saw if Adam, people if Adam had grown up in Oklahoma and had a better home life. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I saw people saying that they thought he was like a Gansey stand-in and I was like no he's totally not Gansey absolutely (laughs) not what I like again is with having stalked Maggie online is (laughs) the way that Pete is described is so much like the way that she has described her husband who she met when she was 19 and they started dating and like he proposed within a month oh that's so sweet and she, the way she describes her husband, who they've been together for years now, is that he is someone who wants to help people. 
<laughs> and so that to me, when I was reading Pete, I was like, this is a stand in for, uh-huh, for, Maggie's, for husband, Maggie's husband, oh which is gosh, fine, awesome. you know, but that was completely like who I was picturing in my head mm-hmm. for Pete. He's just a very genuine person who just wants to help. Mm-hmm. Anything else on what worked for you? What didn't? Oh, we haven't gotten to what didn't. Mm-hmm. The things that really worked for me were just the, the metaphors and the symbolism, which we'll get into later. Mm-hmm. But I already talked a little bit about kind of the absurdist humor. And I talked a little bit about the anthropomorphizing. And mm-hmm. it really quickly swept me up into this world where you just had to accept that this is what was happening right like what was being said on the page was reality for these people Mm -hmm. that worked for me the other thing that worked for me was the repetition of almost pairing of scenes yeah and pairing that happened a lot yeah pairing of it was almost like she took the same again without getting into spoilers she would take the same problem and she would look at it from both sides she would look Mm -hmm. at it from the side of the person who was inside of the problem and she would look at it from the perspective of the person who was outside of the problem and so Mm -hmm. there was lots of pairing of how people were viewing the same situation or similar enough situations Mm -hmm. that they could be or it would be a lot of times it would be a story from the past that was and that was mirroring the story Mm -hmm. Uh, like a problem that was happening right there Mm -hmm. in the in the story yeah very much so so anything that didn't work for you or you disliked a couple of minor things Mm -hmm. like not there wasn't anything that i was just like i don't like this at all but you know like you were saying like the desert as a character Mm -hmm. i didn't connect with it nearly as much as say like i connected with like henrietta Right. And that may just be because, like, you, you know, I grew up in a town. <laughs> it's like I, I, I basically grew up in Henrietta mm-hmm. and I have never been to the desert. Mm-hmm. So it's just like I don't get it. Like, I, I just that, didn't get that connection. What that's like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A thought crossed my mind. Maybe, maybe part of it could be that, like, when Maggie's writing about Henrietta, it's her backyard. Right. But, like, I, I'm not saying that, like, you know, what she said was bad. I'm just saying. Like, no, like, no. But uh, Again, there's, I think, a big difference between the way she's able to flesh out Henrietta and surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. Whereas, again, this is a bottle episode where you don't see anything outside Outside of the Saria's ranch. Well, I mean, you see, like, two other places. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And so you are contained. And if that container doesn't work for you, then, of course, you're going to feel like you're kind of unmoored in the world. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that is... I mean, it was specifically like, this is the container you're in. This mm-hmm. is this is where it's set. And also, like, one more very, very minor thing. Mm-hmm. There's a part where they're talking, Pete and Tony driving to the ranch, and Tony mentions there being mothmen in the desert. Mm-hmm. And my immediate reaction was like, no, mothman <laughs> is in West Virginia. <laughs> yes, but I looked this up, and... And there have been Mothman sightings other places than West Virginia. I know. Yes. Okay. (laughs) 
Right. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and mine is also pretty minor. And again, like yours, it's kind of a comparison to the Raven Cycle. Mm-hmm. And I've been through this book twice now, once with the actual reading and once with the audiobook. And it's not going to give me anything like on a second or third reading. Mm-hmm. It's it's not necessarily going to touch me more the second or third time around. That may not be the case for other people. Mm-hmm. Other people may be able to come back to this book and really get a lot out of it mm-hmm. every single time they come to it. But it's not like the Raven Cycle where I had to start the book over. Right. Or I've listened to it a bunch more than I should mm-hmm. admit. And every single time I'm enthralled. Mm-hmm. It's the second time I was like, okay, yeah, you know, taking notes and that kind of stuff. And and I do feel like I wish that we had more time. We want to get this episode right. out. But I wish we had more time because I do feel like there's a lot of details that could be researched. Mm-hmm. And that might enrich the reading experience. Mm-hmm. But it's but not the, the same thematics as, of it yeah. are not necessarily repeatable for me. Even, and you haven't read it, but even the Scorpio races is mm-hmm. very repeatable for me. I can go back and I can really get swept away by that particular story mm-hmm. and get something out of it every time. But I'm not sure I'll come back to this again. Mm-hmm. I might. Yeah, I you mean, never know. I, I definitely think I might because mm-hmm. it's, it's just... Well, and you were reading it like... Uh-huh. The language <laughs> and is so was beautiful. I. Yeah. And it's just, and like, I feel like there might be a reward to rereading it, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. definitely not to the extent of The Raven Cycle. Just right. like, you almost have to read The Raven Cycle at least twice to yeah. understand oh, what's going on. Absolutely. Quick question also was not on our list. How many times did you cry? How many times did I cry? Yeah. Did you cry? I cried. Of course I cried. I cry every time. <laughs> I cry at everything. I don't know that I actually like shed honest to God tears, but there were definitely times when I teared up. Yeah. No, there was like, (laughs) I was trying desperately to finish while I was on the airplane with the actual hard copy. And like the person next to me, I'm like, (laughs) and I'm sure, I'm sure that they thought like there was something seriously wrong with me. So, uh, so I think I cried probably uh, five times in the (laughs) book. Yeah. There are definitely a few times where I'm like, oh, my heartstrings. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) any themes or through lines that we feel we can talk about without getting into spoilers? I just want to say owls are the new ravens. No, they're not. <laughs> ravens are the new ravens. No, I just mean that, like, as far as the story is concerned. Right? Yes. But... Yeah. Like, like <laughs> owls are as important to this story as... Yes. Very, very true. <laughs> that's very what I true. meant as... That's what I meant. Uh, we, we, no, we can't replace ravens. <laughs> uh and we'll get into some of the symbolism of what owls actually mean, too. Mm-hmm. We mentioned it before, but like the this was something they wanted. This is something they were afraid of. Right. I really like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the through lines, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but it, it actually is kind of in the Raven cycle as well, is that rules are meant to be broken. Uh-huh. <laughs> And then it really is a book about love of all kinds. As you mentioned, it's about romantic, filial, friend, like agape. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like 
And even the love of place and of mm-hmm. home, because it's interesting. And again, for second chapter, Pete comes into the desert and he feels like this is the place this is home. for him. Mm-hmm. And that's it. He has mm-hmm. come home before he even sees the Sarias. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of other things that it was inspired Maggie has said by all of these kind of questions that readers often ask her that she dubs her responses to as dubious life advice. (laughs) And so there is very definitely this feeling that not just the pilgrims, but basically everyone in the world Mm -hmm. has these questions that really can only be answered when they're starting to answer them for themselves. Right. Without getting into spoilers, that's about all I can say. Uh-huh. There's a theme of miracles always come in twos. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really like that miracles aren't always what they look like, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What you need isn't always what you think you need. Right. There's a, a ton of Christian imagery and, and stuff running through it. Right. Specifically, like, Catholicism or Latin American Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Which we discussed. I didn't really pick up on because that's not my background. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I was looking at more of the things like the lechuza. Owls with women's faces. The women oh. who can shapeshift. Uh-huh. So the bruja that can shapeshift are actually a thing. They shapeshift into owls. So... Like that was something that I picked up right away, mm-hmm. which because I, I have that, that background. Uh, I didn't pick that up at all. But, yeah, so that but was a particular the, reference mm-hmm. that I was like, oh yeah, totally. Well, yeah, and no. while I didn't, while I didn't grow up Catholic, right, I picked up a whole lot of the Christian imagery and stuff like right. that, and mm-hmm. I'll probably talk a little bit more about that in the spoiler stuff. Section. Yeah, yeah. There's not a whole lot I can talk about either with that, but as far as the metaphors and the symbolism. We can just go through briefly what some of the symbols are in the book and maybe what we think about those symbols without getting into what they mean to the story. First off is music is communication. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty straightforward, pretty standard thing. The black roses, that kind of symbolizes... Well, you know, a red rose would be romantic love. Mm -hmm. And black roses symbolize death, but the death of romantic love could be a symbol. And so when you read through Mm -hmm. and you see where the black roses fall into that, that could could be what that's sort of a metaphor for. Mm -hmm. And then there were a couple of sort of Christian images that did pop out at me, of course. Uh, There's a painting that's referenced that is an actual, there's an actual story about that painting Mm -hmm. that basically deals with that saint helping people. Ah, So mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. And then there's also a reference to the Pieta, which I thought was gorgeous. That was one of the spots where I had to stop and be like, oh, I'm going to read that again. (laughs) Um, any particular ones that you had? I was like, man, the whole book is symbolism. Yeah. Everything. Yes. Yeah. Everything. Either it's a direct metaphor of what's happening with that person. Uh-huh. Or the reality is reflecting what the... I don't know. Like, I don't even know how to... Like, how do you differentiate between what may or may not be reality and what may or may not be magic in uh-huh. this particular book because they're so intertwined. Right. You just have to accept walking in that the magic is real. Mm-hmm. The reality is shaped by magic. Mm-hmm. Or whatever you want to define that as. Right. 
I'm just going to really quickly talk about some of the animals that are present in the book. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to pull some quick stuff. I could have researched this online, but I just happen to have a book on animal symbols on my bookshelf because it's the kind of person (laughs) I am. Owls are symbolically associated with clairvoyance, astral projection, and magic, both black and white. And they see in the dark. They can accurately pinpoint and identify sounds, which is a big thing Mm -hmm. because they are drawn to the miracles. Miracles. Mm -hmm. And that makes so much sense. And owls are most importantly for at least for us in the west or for people who are influenced by western thought they're a symbol for wisdom mm-hmm. so the owls coming to the pilgrims is like basically a gift of wisdom mm-hmm. which yeah they're, they're a symbol of athena as right well. yeah exactly and then Butterflies. I was going to see if you mentioned the butterflies. <laughs> yeah. Butterflies are obviously right off the bat a symbol of transformation. Mm-hmm. And they're also a symbol of hope, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense when taken as like the person who is has the butterflies. Mm-hmm. Once she is able to kind of work through her first part of her miracle, and then the second part is actually hope coming to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I definitely like have that written down to talk about later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Coyote is a trickster. He has so many legends and myths that we can't get into, but he symbolizes folly and foolishness and Mm -hmm. kind of getting caught up in self-sabotage. And he's also very much considered one of the holiest symbols Mm -hmm. in Southwestern mythology. And so the holy fool is sort of kind of keep that in mind with the coyote. That's a good one. And then there are a couple of other things like a fox is usually camouflage or being able to be protected Mm -hmm. or protective. So that's an animal that comes in. And then there's one that is sort of a dragon, which obviously is also a protective thing, Mm -hmm. a very rigorous and armored, we'll say, animal. Mm -hmm. And then there are references to some things like spider, which... I don't really want to get into, but there's some some references to some other animals that are kind of more minor. Right. So it was really interesting to me because I felt like if you didn't have a grounding in those symbols, it would be mm-hmm. it would really behoove you to kind of look them up online. And there's going to be right. pages and pages and pages of different interpretations that right. from different cultures and different perspectives. And I did not look up what their culture would look at these as. They just just happened to be a book that I had on my shelf. Mm-hmm. There was only one other sort of, not really even metaphor or symbol, but sort of a through line that one word could contain everything. Uh-huh. And, and it referenced the power of names. Mm-hmm. This is why in more yeah, conservative in some, cultures, mm-hmm. they took care to talk to each other as Mr. and Mrs. Refer right, to each other Mr. Right. and Mrs. Yeah. So we're just going to do a quick little discussion on sort of genre, because it's on the one hand, it's hard to place 
this book in a genre. Mm -hmm. When I first started reading it, like I said, I thought it was kind of a surrealist humor fiction uh, with, you know, kind of that, like you said earlier, tall tales, parable Mm. style. And it does feel a lot also like magical realism. Right. Yeah. I wish I knew more about the genre specifically. Mm -hmm, More than anything else, this book has made me want to go to sort of those progenitors of magical realism as a literary movement and actually read some of those books. I feel like I probably, if I went through a list of everything, have read maybe one or two, Mm -hmm. but I don't know enough about the genre to be able to pick it out and say, oh, this is. If, If nothing else, this could be considered an homage to mm-hmm. is it a style is it a movement or a particular literary line i'm not actually sure i know it's connected quite often with basically like mexican american latin american authors right right mm-hmm. and i'm not sure if i've seen some opinions or i'm not because i don't know enough about it to be able to say one way or the other basically saying if you are not latinx you cannot write magical realism it is not because it has to be rooted in a very particular yeah there's a very specific there's a very specific time period and Mm -hmm. culture and like sense of community and place that a lot of these stories come from and so like i think a lot of people see it as appropriative Mm -hmm. to take that now i did see one review i think it was kirkus that called it fabulism Mm -hmm. i don't know if there is really a differentiation the definitions looked really similar Uh (laughs) yeah like i'm I'm not sure what to call it Mm -hmm. because Again, to me, it reminds me so much of Tom Robbins or Roald mm. Dahl or those authors who obviously are not a part of the magical realism movement. Right. But it seems like if you're going to call it a literary movement, then it does have to ha- encapsulate these core identities of, right. of being about colonialism and mm-hmm. these themes have to be in it to be actually a check mark right, next to exactly. ma- magical realism but obviously there have i mean we had paul bunyan we uh-huh. had johnny appleseed this is no different it is placed into a culture and i mm-hmm. feel like that's why it might be easier to say it's an homage right or i mean honestly it feels like a love letter to me uh-huh. but i'm also not of the culture right exactly. i mean i might be hispanic it- background and i'm air quoting <laughs> because my mom is Hispanic, but we weren't Mexican-American. Like, it's not the culture you were raised in. No, not at all. I mean, I may have been named after a saint, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was actually, you know, I Are think my... Are you a crooked saint? Uh... <laughs> No, I actually think she's probably not a crooked saint. Okay. <laughs> she's one of the virgins. <laughs> <laughs> I, hate I I wrote it down, but I probably would bu- probably butchered the Spanish anyway, so I probably shouldn't say it. But I didn't grow up in there. I can't really speak to that mm-hmm. whether or not it is or isn't. The only thing I can say is that it has made me want to go to read some of those right. books. Exactly. And to me, that's a good That's thing. That's what art is about. Mm-hmm. You want to have something that leads people down a path and makes them want to explore the next thing, the deeper thing, the, mm-hmm. the original thing. Right. And this does not tell the same kind of story that those stories tell. 
I don't know. I don't know where you would put a movie like Big Fish. Right. And then, you know, there's obviously been controversy. And I think anyone who's followed this book knows that there was controversy around the book. Not being a part of the culture, I can't really speak to that. I have really, really looked for reviews written by people of Latinx culture, particularly Mexican-American culture. I do know that Maggie had sensitivity readers. She talked about it when I saw her, you know, Mm -hmm. months and months ago that she was going to be doing that or that she had already had people look at it. And I'm not sure what else you can do. Right. Like, I, I don't think we should say, like, you can't write about people who are not from your culture. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between, like, trying to tell a story that is not yours and having people of different cultures right. in your stories. I mean, what is fiction? Exactly. It's, it's I, I it's am not really a... tricky. Yeah. It's re- yeah. It's, a, it's such There's a, a really fine line. fine line between appreciation and appropriation. Right. And unfortunately, we are white. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we don't get to make that call. We don't call. get to make that call. And I obviously will link to whatever articles I can find mm-hmm. of people, of the culture, positive or negative. Right now, the only ones that I've actually found have basically said that they that have read the book. Now, that's a big part of it, that a lot of people were reviewing this book before it was even written. The book was not done and they were reviewing it with one star reviews, which to me is not okay. I don't know. Like before you even Bef- see before you what even the book see is. what the book is, and maybe it forced her hand, or maybe she was already had sensitivity readers on board. I mean, I don't know, but in any case, I think the sensitivity readers were a good call. Oh yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. And I think she also said that she had passed it on to people who lived through the sixties, who would be able to see whether or not she had included anything that wasn't appropriate to the timeline because. Mm. Even though it doesn't deal with politics, I mean, there are a couple of quick mentions here and there. One of the things that I've seen her say, and I did not write down the direct quote, but basically that that time period was when America was losing its innocence in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and was coming into this social awareness. And she also wanted the time period. The reason that she said it in the 60s was because of that kind of background of revolution in a lot of ways. And she mm-hmm. mentions it here and there very briefly. Yeah. So, I mean, I read bits and pieces, again, my mom's not Mexican-American, but I read bits and pieces to her, and she was laughing, and she thought it was great. Right. I mean, that's one person's opinion. Mm-hmm. It's not every person's opinion, but I can't say that I saw anything. Yeah, I, I didn't either. But I mean, again, like you said, I would like to find... Yeah, I would love to see some other works. Right. And I would love to be able to then dive into those and actually learn something about this mm-hmm. particular literary movement. So anything you wanted to add? Um, no, I think we pretty much covered that bit. Yeah. I mean, it was a tough one because mm-hmm. I was super excited about the book. And I think a lot of people were. And it was really tough. I can't imagine what it was like for Maggie. Mm-hmm. But it was really tough to even just see it as a fan and not know where you can step in. And I mean, not you can't step in, but, mm-hmm. you know, like where your opinion should fall. And right. If nothing else, like I said, I will look, I will continue looking for people's reviews that are actually 
right of the culture and passing those on so all right well i think that's about it is there any kind of last thoughts about all the crooked saints that we want to get into real quick i also wanted to mention that um when they first started talking about the radios and like the radio tower and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. I immediately wanted to do a deep dive into ham radio, mm. which uh, my family is into. Like my my whole family, like my mom, my dad, my younger brother, and myself mm-hmm. all have our ham radio license. And like, so I was like listening to all this stuff, not specifically like dealing with AM radio, but right, like right. I was like, oh, I can connect that to right. to like Beatrice's uh, satellite dish is like my dad's radio tower in the back of in the backyard. Oh that's cool. Uh-huh. That's really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> my dad's always climbing up his radio tower, like, you know, <laughs> going up on the mountain to work on the tower up there. And I'm just like, oh yeah. that'd be so cool to do a deep dive on ham, ham radio. radio. <laughs> that's awesome. Anything else? Hmm. Nothing specifically crosses my mind. We've talked about most of it. All right. I'm just going to end. One of my favorite parts was a passage, and it's not really a spoiler, a passage where Maggie describes a barn. I really want to quote this. We almost always can point to that hundredth blow, but we don't always mark the 99 other things that happen before we change. That was where I was like, yes, that's a really, it's a really beautiful passage. Yeah. So thank you for listening and joining us today. Keep an eye out for our episode two of the regular podcast. Basically, we're, we're yeah. going to release it the same day. That's mm-hmm. the plan. We may or may not make that plan. So episode two is pretty much ready should to be, go. Should it, be coming it soon. Should be, it, this particular episode will either be after episode two. So you've already heard episode two. Or it'll be the same day, one or the other. Mm. And then I really wanted, or we wanted to shout out to someone who's been very, very supportive. A big, big thank you to the Raven Cycle AU on Twitter. It's Raven underscore cycle at twitter.com. They have been great and just super awesome about retweeting our shows being, and being, being very s- excited and, and just generally really, sweet and nice. And <laughs> we both had a conversation with them this morning mm-hmm. and about all the Crooked Saints because they finished it last night and <laughs> just kind of gushed a little bit um, mm-hmm. in direct messages. So just to let you guys know that you're always welcome to talk to us and and we super, super, super appreciate your support. So thank Absolutely. you so much. Speaking of getting in touch with us, you can find us practically everywhere on social media at R-A-V-I-N-G-I-R-L-S, on Twitter at Raven Girls, on Tumblr at ravengirls.tumblr.com, Facebook at facebook.com slash ravengirls, and reach us directly at ravengirls at gmail.com. And if you were to want to get in touch with me for some reason, you can reach me at substanceparty, one word, all spelled out, dot tumblr.com, or via Gmail at substanceparty with all of the A's taken out, S-U-B-S-T-N-C-E-P-R-T-Y at gmail.com. If we have referenced a post or article in the podcast, we will do our best to include the source links to those in the show notes. All the Crooked Saints is copyright Maggie Steve Otter and Scholastic Incorporated. We hope you enjoyed today's show. And until next time, whoop whoop Raven Girls! Oh man. <laughs>
Alrighty then, if you're still with us, we are assuming that you have read this book or you do not care about spoilers. Absolutely. If you care about spoilers, you should Turn have off stopped now. the episode five seconds ago. We are going to go more into character development. Like we said at the very, very beginning, this book is so heavily character driven that in order to actually talk about the characters, we have to talk about their arcs in a lot of respects. And so that's kind of where we're going to go here. We're also going to talk a little bit about some of what we didn't like, at least from my perspective, and some of the themes that we couldn't address before, because they might have been spoilery. Mm -hmm. Even so, we may not get into kind of what the denouement, (laughs) what the ending is actually all about. I'm going to let Shannon go first, because she's actually got some really interesting information that that I didn't necessarily pick up on because it's not my background. So we were talking earlier about all the Christian allegory in mm-hmm. in these books. And one of the biggest points of that is Daniel. Mm-hmm. Um, the well, saint. Yes. For those, we get we yeah, get yeah, again. we get a whole lot of Christian allegory, specifically Catholic, specifically Latin American, Mexican American Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Which, although I didn't grow up in that specific branch of of uh, Christianity, mm. I recognized a lot of it right off. There's a lot of Jesus and prophet imagery going on with Daniel. Mm-hmm. Just the very fact that he wanders into the desert mm-hmm. is reminiscent of both Jesus after the temptation right. and Elijah mm-hmm. in First Kings. In First Kings 19, verses 4 through 6... It's talking about the prophet Elijah, and it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under the juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Mm-hmm. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Which, I mean, it, pretty much happens. It's like exactly yeah. what happens with Daniel, where mm-hmm. he falls asleep under the juniper bush. Is it a juniper it bush? It might be juniper bush. I don't know that it specifically <laughs> says, but like I saw that, I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm going right. to, like, I immediately thought of those two things and mm-hmm. like was like, oh, I'm going to look this up and find the verse. And I was like, wow, it's even closer than I thought. Right. And then the water is brought to him by the spirits of the either past pilgrims or mm-hmm. the Surya family members who right. were consumed by Other their people darkness, who went out into, right. the, into the desert. Mm-hmm. There's also, when it comes to uh, the Christian allegory, there's a little bit about when we're introduced to Pete. And it says that even as a child, he was a rock you could build a church on. Mm-hmm. And that immediately struck me again in uh, Matthew 16, 18. Jesus is talking to the disciple Peter, whose mm-hmm. actual name is Simon. But Jesus is like, no, your name's going to be Peter because upon this rock, I will build my church. Mm-hmm. And Peter was actually the first pope. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Did not know that. Yep. Again, totally not my <laughs> my realm of it's the... Like, it's like Catholics like Peter and Protestants like Paul. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Well, and I had referenced that when Merisita finds Daniel in the desert and Beatrice comes upon them. Mm -hmm. Oh, she specifically says. Specifically, basically says. She doesn't name it the Pieta, but like that is the pose that they are in. Right. Where he's gaunt and Merisita has him cradled on her lap. Yeah, and even, like, you know, the long hair and the gentle look, and Mm -hmm. there's just a whole lot of of Jesus imagery going on with him. I also thought about there's a lot of Day of the Dead imagery Mm. as well. The bit where he's performing Tony's miracle. Like, I I noted to myself, oh, I feel like uh, there's a lot of Day of the Dead imagery going on here with the way the candles were and just, like, the way that he is described feels like a lot of Day of the Dead imagery that I've seen, Mm. like, with the... Not specifically skeletal face, but... He paints his eyes dark, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't, again, don't have enough of a frame of reference to right. be able to make that connection. And so there's that. And then later on, it talks about how when the monarchs migrate down to Mexico... Right. That it's, it's just before... Yeah. The, it's just before mm-hmm. the Day of the Dead. And they're like, it's the souls coming back for Day of the right, Dead. Right. And so when... That made that moment for me when Maricita's butterflies fly away. I, I like was just her like, soul opening oh up. man. Right. And just like it's the connection to Daniel as well. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, Maricita. So since we're talking about Daniel, Maricita's miracles, her first miracles, obviously the rain kind of as a symbolism of her grief and mm-hmm. her overwhelming, oppressive depression of what she did when she left her family right and the fact that her depression is what's keeping the butterflies which symbolize the hope right down down it's like they can't fly when they're they can't fly when they're wet so her grief her guilt has to be released even before her soul can open up even before her hope can fly right and what i found was really interesting was are you done with the Daniel? Yeah, yeah. Or the major. Yeah. What I found obviously was each miracle is tailored to what that person. Oh, absolutely. Needs. And I got halfway through and kind of went, oh, this is really kind of an interesting way to look at mental illness Mm -hmm. because of this depression or even feeling voiceless and powerless like Jenny. She's she's not able to be assertive and use her own words. So she has to use the words of everyone around her. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I disliked about the book was that there were some of the pilgrims that didn't get resolved. Yes, and I, I wanted to see all of them I get wanted, help. I wanted to see the resolution of them, even if it was just like a quick little mention of where Jenny went, where Felden Bunch, uh-huh. what happened to him. If he, he, I, I kind of wondered if he was still around because his whole miracle was about basically like being lazy or not being lazy but basically kind of being shiftless Mm -hmm. and I guess those are the same in a way and the whole moss grows fat on a yeah Uh moss doesn't grow on a on a rolling stone stone, kind of yeah this idea that he's covered in moss because he doesn't actually move Mm -hmm. forward at all and he has no motivation and so I was wondering did he ever actually manage to get through that that would be a difficult one to get through it would be because you again he would have to have the motivation to to, to help himself to figure out what was going but of on. Of 
course, like the twins, they manage to resolve it once they actually kind of tell each other other. what the jealousy and because they've got the snake that's between them that, you know, is keeping them tight together. And yet they hate being so tight together and they hate Mm -hmm. sort of being mistaken one for the other. Yet they don't wrapped up their identities in each each other. other. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of symbolized that venom, venom, venomness, venom. Vem, ven- venomous, venomness, venom. <laughs> you know, poisonousness. <laughs> Except poisonousness is not the word I want. Um, the fact that it's bad. <laughs> so, how much wine have you had, dear? Not enough. <laughs> not enough. Um, venomousness, venomousness, yes? All right, whatever. Anyway, you know, the fact that the snake snaps at Pete when he even slightly is talking to one twin versus the other, Mm -hmm. that kind of shows that it's this sickly jealousy, uh, envy kind of thing that's binding them together. And of course, Tony is gone into with a lot of detail because... He's kind of a main, quote, main character. Right. But I wish that all of the pilgrims had gotten resolution. Uh-huh. And I just wish, like, seriously, give me a sentence. Because I do feel like this is a problem that Maggie has where these minor characters, oh, we don't need them anymore. Nobody cares. It's like, she yes, does, we do. She does that in several of her other books, too. And I'm uh-huh. like, just give me a fucking sentence. Like, mm-hmm. literally 17 more words in your book. <laughs> Telling me what happens to Jenny. That's it. That's all I want. So that was one of my big disappointments. But I I really thought it was very interesting how these are kind of almost representations of not even mental illness, but potentially issues that everybody has to work through. And the big theme on that is that you cannot start working through them until you share them. Until you actually see them and acknowledge them and ask for a helping hand, Mm -hmm. however that might be. I've heard it so many times. Acknowledging you have a problem is the Mm -hmm. first step. Yeah, and I think that that's what that first miracle is all about. Mm -hmm. It's so true that it's, it's so many people don't get past that in real life. They don't. And when you go to a therapist, they say... We're not getting anywhere if you don't put the work in. Mm -hmm. You have to put the work in. And imagine going to a therapist and paying them money and them, like, not listening to you, which is basically what the Suriyas are doing when they don't interact (laughs) with the pilgrims. They're like, all right, well, here, here's your problem. Now go Mm -hmm. deal with it yourself, which is... It's Daniel's. They have a problem as well. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. The whole remove a log from your own eye before removing it from your neighbor's Mm -hmm. eye. Remove the log from your own eye before you try to remove this back from your Mm -hmm. neighbor's. Yeah. So the other character I want to talk a little bit about is Beatrice and sort of Mm -hmm. her characterization and her sort of insistence that she doesn't have feelings and that she's not upset over and over and over. Mm -hmm. From the very, like, again, first couple of chapters, Pete fell deeply in love with the desert and the desert is described as strange and cold. 
just uh-huh. like Beatrice is right. described. It's almost like this externalization of her internal landscape is actually mm. what he drives into and he falls in love with. Right. And then just the whole feeling of her removing herself from her emotions and having to recognize that even at the end when she does recognize that she has emotions they're described as strangely shaped and again i think this ties a lot into the thing that we both saw that maybe beatrice and her father actually are being depicted as on the autism spectrum or Mm -hmm. neurodivergent right and I really wish that I we knew could, someone mm-hmm. with more experience in that or, you know, someone who is neurodivergent who had read this book and can be like, yeah, that, if, that works. If they could self-identify with that in mm-hmm. in some way. I wish so, too. It definitely felt like that's how it was being portrayed or flagged mm-hmm. or the sort of the t- subtext of it. Right. But I don't necessarily, like, feel comfortable saying that that's what was being right. said because... Obviously, that's not mm. my experience. And so therefore, and not even not everybody's experience is going to be the same. on Right, that one. exactly. I was finding myself thinking of it that way. And therefore, it wasn't that she had cut herself off from her emotions. It was, it was just that like, she couldn't, she just couldn't see them. Well, yeah, it, it was, it's, it's like, like differently shaped like right like right her brain literally works different right. than everyone around her. Yeah. And so what is normal for her is like, wait, that's not how that works for everybody else. And so because her brain thought of things differently, she thought she wasn't feeling the same things that everybody else was. Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the other lines that really, really (laughs) kind of made me cry, because I have definitely, TMI, I guess, but definitely dealt with depression. Beatrice, when she's kind of dealing with her own miracle and she's kind of working through how you you can't deal with your own, basically. You kind Mm -hmm. of do need that outside help. From the inside, the darkness was indistinguishable from your other thoughts. And Mm. that is basically depression. Yeah. I mean, it's probably all kinds of things. But for me, having dealt with depression, that was so much like, yes, this is how it feels. You don't know that those thoughts aren't, I won't even say not normal because they are normal. They mm-hmm. just are. And I also want to talk a little bit about Tony because the whole scene with Tony, it actually took, it did take me till the second time around, but I think I was distracted the first time. But I loved to kind of go back to the controversy Tony, when his introspection makes the miracle happen. So the butterflies from Maricita fly up into the atmosphere, which is already charged and almost like a thunderstorm. And it excites everything. And he gets struck by lightning. But what I liked was Tony's self-introspection on this was that he was a giant and he could hold up someone else's voice so it was a little louder. Right. Exactly. Which I was like, ugh. That almost hits that controversy that we were talking yes, about. Yes, it does. That that if is you the have difference between appreciation appropri- and appropriation. appropriation. Yes. If you have the ability to magnify someone else's voice mm. and you have the privilege to be able to do so, then you can lift them up and make them louder. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was kind of a little hat tip. Or a little nod yeah, I to being so able to do that. Is there anything else? A couple of other things that uh-huh. I was thinking about. Just like little funny things that mm-hmm. I was 
I love the meeting between Pete and Tony. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I just... <laughs> yeah. Well, I love... Go ahead. Do your thing. Just like... I just... I love the interactions between them. Oh, I can't turn the radio dial. That's right. I threw it out in the middle of Ohio because I was tired of listening to it whining. And I don't want to listen to yours either. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like... So good. Uh-huh. Later on when you get the story about Pete being lonely and mm. like wanting to get like a little chick friend for all his like... I know. His, uh, like all his classmates and ended up getting one for like all the students in like the entire county. Right. Plus the extra. I'm just like... I fell in love with him right there. I'm just like, yes, I love this kid. He's so cute. Uh And then, like, his dad is Paul Bunyan. Like, I know. (laughs) Well, and that's where I was like, well, this is so, so much. Just a tall tale. Like, this is where it was very, you just tell these inflated stories. And that just becomes who these people are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What I loved, one of the, the lines that made me laugh so much with the Tony and Pete was... This meant the drive would have been long in any circumstance, but it seemed even longer because Pete and Tony, like a lot of people who are destined to be friends, couldn't stand each other. <laughs> I really like that one a lot. I was like, getting, I was like, Maggie's calling me out. <laughs> Anything else? There are so many, like, quotes that I could just go on and on, but we don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that there's anything else, like, specifically. I also um, see my note here. It's like, oh, the Serena Cousins invented talk radio. (laughs) Which, yeah. (laughs) I I would think that they had talk radio in the 60s. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, Pete, like many a young rural Protestant, reeled back first from the priestly collar and second from the coyote head. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Again, I've, that was not funny to me because I don't mm-hmm. have any I, of reference. I have a very specific story that I'm not going to tell. Okay, you yeah, can tell me later. I'll tell you later. <laughs> okay. Uh, you wanted to mention the rooster. Oh, yes. So one of the characters that we didn't, I couldn't really go, get into was Darlene, who was the rancher. First off, I just love the fact that she's lesbian. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's, it's just played off. Like, there's no mm-hmm. calling out of that. I love the fact that she has a partner. She's in love with her partner. Her partner passes away. And like many people, she gets bitter. And Mm -hmm. she starts doing some terrible things. It wasn't necessarily that I wanted to talk about the rooster, although I love him. Uh (laughs) And I really, I really, really loved the scene where Francisco has him in the... In front of the mirror? Well, because the the glass, the glare on the glass, he's attacking his own reflection. And basically, like, Francisco's like... Yeah, that's a that's a metaphor like uh-huh. for life basically. <laughs> um I just I'm like, yeah, mhm. I how why am I relating to this chicken so hard? <laughs> like who seriously, mm. General MacArthur's maybe my spirit animal on this one? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah. But I, no, I just really liked Darlene. And mm-hmm. then to kind of call back to the Black Roses, 
I did love the fact that Francisco is trying to grow this black rose while Antonia is in her house cutting black roses. Yes. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. and and there is the the moment where she gives him the black rose, uh-huh. but it was it was just such like oh god that is a symbol for ro- right. for, for love that has died mm-hmm. or that is dying. Yeah, um, and I also really like Beatrice's father's question of why does sexual reproduction happen like. <laughs> Like, why can't I just butt off and uh-huh. then there be another um, human being? No. Uh-huh. And like the scientist in me is like, because it's uh, more genetic diversity. Mm-hmm. But I'm also like, it's a really interesting philosophical question. Because like, as a Catholic man, he's like, we're made in the image of God. So mm-hmm. why don't we, like God, speak or breathe our progeny into existence? Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't thought about it. Yeah. I haven't cool. really thought about it from that perspective either. And yeah. I was just like, that, that's just an interesting question question hmm. there's also a quote that we both really liked and we were thinking of using for the opener by regulating things we fear and don't understand to religion and things we understand and control to science we rob science of its artistry and religion of its mutability yeah yeah i just i really like that quote yeah it's beautiful mm-hmm. i think we're done i, I don't have anything done. else <laughs> Well, again, thank you for joining us and thank you for listening all the way through the spoiler section. And if you have any feedback or anything that you'd like to add, again, you can always get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Yep. All right. Catch you later, guys. Bye. (laughs) That was fun. I mean, the only real plot is the horse escaping. That's literally the only plot thing that, I mean, like, well, action item that happens. I mean, we would kill Daniel going to the desert, right? But that's character driven. I mean, that's mm, a character. It's completely character reason. There's no plot for that to happen. Mm, that's true. There's like no plot in the book whatsoever. <laughs> anyway, back on. Yep. Game on! Game <laughs> on!